Hey guys, welcome back to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I'm Dave. And Graham over here. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We're talking with Leo Weiss, president of the Hong Kong Bitcoin Association, about the protests that have been happening in Hong Kong since April. Right. And just a little bit of context. Hong Kongers like Leo have been protesting against this extradition bill, which if put into law would effectively allow any Hong Kong nationals or foreign citizens passing through the city to be sent for trial on the Chinese mainland where courts are under the Chinese political party. If you didn't already know, Hong Kong acts as sort of a pseudo-sovereign state separate from China, which Leo will help explain. But basically, this bill is a big deal. And freedom, liberty, sovereignty, these are all different values that Hong Kongers feel could be threatened if this bill is passed into Chinese law. So without further ado, here's our interview with Leo Weiss. Yeah, so before we were doing the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, we had another show. It was a little bit more about blockchain topics, uh, but we did a few episodes on, on censorship in China. So we've covered a little bit. We, we were covering the, the Great Firewall, but we've like looked at some of this stuff. And uh, I was uh, kind of like getting caught up on the topic this morning, really. So I've got like a, you know, like a very rough understanding but I kind of wanted to ask you about it. And from what I can tell, you've been in a pretty unique uh, position as far as like seeing the protests and events yeah. this week. Yeah, I'd say Hong Kong is generally in a, in a quite unique position. It's very much wedged between two different worlds and it's a city full of contradictions. Uh, also when it comes to being, um, yeah, more and more subject to an authoritarian regime that wants to control everything. Um, but still having free access to the world's information. Yeah, and, and can I ask, can you uh, just explain uh, why Hong Kong is a separate, separately governed and economic system than China, the rest of yeah. mainland China? Um, so this all goes back to 1840 when uh, the yeah, European powers wanted to open up the markets in China, um, and they wanted to do so by force. Um, China didn't have much to trade with Europe, um, so. European nations, um, yeah, Britain um, at the very forefront, um, they forced China to open its, uh, its ports, um, brought heroin, opium into the, opium mainly, into the, um, into, the, um, into the mainland, and established Hong Kong as its military base to protect this trade. Um, and as China went through a couple of changes itself, um, there was a revolution in 1911. Um, the Republic of China was founded. Um, the communists um, started their rise in the 1920s. Um, China went through lots and lots of turbulent times um, in the 20s and 30s and 40s in a, in a civil war. Um, and, and all that time, Hong Kong um, was, a, yeah, was a haven of, of stability for especially traders, uh, for missionaries who wanted to spread Christian belief into China, but also for um, Chinese traders who wanted to, um, yeah, make money by by selling and buying, um, by importing and exporting goods. And um, in the 1960s, there you would have a large influx of refugees coming from China, um, while Mao uh, Mao Zedong was, um, yeah, um, neglecting is maybe a bit of too weak of a word, uh, but yeah, actively. Um, suppressing its po his population politically and culturally and economically. Um, so millions of people fled, um, and many of them fled to Hong Kong 
um, where they would find work in factories, in uh, manufacturing toys or sewing together garments, um, assembling um, smaller electronics. And um, this made the city very, very rich in the 60s, in the mainly in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, to the point where, where Hong Kong almost made up, of, of just back then, I think just five or six million people, made up a third of uh, the GDP of all of China, um, mm -hmm. which today has 1.4 billion people. And so China started opening up after Mao's death. And um, yeah, Hong Kong businessmen, um, as well as Taiwanese businessmen were among the first to um, step a foot into the country and, and build factories there and make use of the country's like newly established special economic zones that allowed you to, yeah, allowed some kind of capitalism in the country. And as, um, yeah, as, as China grew, um, grew more prosperous and um, became more open again, um, the, the, the time came to return Hong Kong to China, um, or rather to, as it's usually called in English, to hand over Hong Kong to China. Um, so 1898, in the, after the Second Opium Wars, Britain had made a, a contract with, um, with the empire um, to lease um, the northern part of Hong Kong uh, for 99 years. And so in 1997, this uh, lease would be over. Um, and of course, um, there's a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of ambiguity in exactly what that meant and which parts would have to be given back. But um, since China claimed all of, um, since China claimed all of, um, uh, all of Hong Kong to be rightfully theirs, um, and since the UK wasn't too interested in maintaining uh, colonies overseas, um, they didn't really know exactly what to do with Hong Kong. Um, yeah, Margaret Thatcher and um, Deng Xiaoping did decide on some kind of agreement that would, yeah, resume, like, resume sovereignty of, uh, of, of the People's Republic. And that came with uh, a catch, um, meaning Hong Kong was to be given its own constitution. That constitution was to be, um, yeah, was to be valid for at least 50 years. And Hong Kong's way of life was to remain unchanged. Um, and what exactly that meant has, of course, been um, yeah, subject to a lot of debates and a lot of conflict, um, mainly also because there are a couple of expectations in that, in that constitution that would, um, yeah, would kind of uh, give people the impression that Hong Kong would, for example, give, uh, be given democracy, um, or the expectation that Hong Kong would um, get some kind of national security law that would make treason against the People's Republic of China a punishable offense. And of course, the, when Margaret Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping um, yeah, kind of discussed this, um, there was also the expectation in the West that as China would become richer and more open, more up, it would also become more democratic. And within, yeah, maybe within like 2020, 2030, um, this wouldn't be much of a debate anymore anyway, um, because Hong Kong would become um, more like China and China would become more like the West. And eventually, um, especially, you can imagine how confident the West was in the 1990s when they had just won the Cold War and they had emerged at these, yeah, this like the, the morally just pinnacle of civilization. And they were very much convinced that what happened to the Soviet Union would eventually happen to China as well. And that giving Hong Kong back, so to say, 
uh, wouldn't cause uh, much more issues. Uh, but now we are at the point where uh, Hong Kong people feel like they are not Chinese, um, that they have their own identity, that they want to determine their own fate. Um, they do want um, to be able to elect their own rulers. Um, they do want to keep their freedoms. They want to keep their freedom of speech, their freedom of association, um, their property rights, um, their, their rights to travel. Um, and um, they want to, yeah, they want China to sort of keep its promises that China made um, in, in, those, in those agreements and especially in this, um, in this constitution. But what China wants, and it's especially true for the last five years, uh, where China has um, not only asserted more and more control over itself, over its own citizens, but also over Taiwan, over Hong Kong, over its immediate neighbors like the Philippines or Vietnam, and has even started to influence like European politics or politics in New Zealand or, um, or Northern America. Um, and so people, I think, are quite um, understandably upset. And in this particular case, we are protesting um, a law called the Extradition Law Amendment Bill, um, which is not exactly an extradition treaty, but rather a, an amendment that would allow Hong Kong to extradite um, people for a certain list of offenses if China asks them to. Um, and China still being under a separate legal jurisdiction um, with um, proper rule of law and independent courts um, would, of course, very quickly lose all of its freedoms and privileges if China can simply demand anybody to be uh, basically kidnapped on the streets of Hong Kong by the Hong Kong police and sent to China uh, to uh, camps and prisons uh, where they're never heard from again. Do you, what, do you, what do people from Hong Kong call themselves? Hong Kongians? Hong uh, Kongian, which, uh, which means like Hong Konger or Hong Kongese. Okay. So Hong Kongers elect their own leaders, don't they? Um, they elect a portion of parliament. Um, so about half of parliament is more or less democratically elected. Um, some of the municipal, um, the, the district councils are also democratically elected. But the chief executive, um, who's sort of the prime minister, um, is elected by, a, uh, by, an elect uh, by an election council of just around 1,200 people, um, some of which, um, some of which uh, might have some democratic, uh, some democratic touches, but are mainly, mainly those are selected by, uh, by Beijing and by the local business community. And, and China is an extremely influential global power. So I would understand that something, you know, Hong Kong appears like this, you know, at least in economic terms, like a jewel um, that is not totally part of that nation. So I, I guess I can understand why China would want to, to have more control and influence on Hong Kong. But yeah, um, I mean, I think for them, it's really just like control for the sake of control. Um, it's very easy to imagine a reality in which um, China is perfectly fine with having like a rich Hong Kong that rules itself and that's still as long as it calls itself part of China. Um, but um, the Communist Party is also quite worried about its, about its uh, place in China 
and it fears any kind of opposition from anybody. Um, and of course, opposition that comes from within its own borders um, is seen as a lot more threatening. So this is also about, um, yeah, this is about silencing and preempting um, anybody who could, who could challenge the CCP and their rule over China. Leo, can you sort of take a step back and, and explain, maybe just explain it to me like I'm five, why, someone, why China would want to extradite somebody from Hong Kong? Why is this such a big issue? Yeah, so I do have sometimes trouble uh, understanding exactly what the, what the thought process is of Chinese leaders as well. Um, but think of it as a... Um, yeah, I mean, it is a dictatorship. Uh, and this dictatorship is, does not have a lot of legitimacy over, over its own rule. Um, it's not democratically elected. Um, it doesn't really, I mean, it came to power itself through a civil war, um, through, yeah, very simple, violent means. Um, and a lot of people don't want to see them in power. Um, a lot of, they have a lot of enemies, um, partly from, from, for example, the, the Nationalist Party that they, that they were into war with. They have foreign enemies. Um, they have, inside of the Communist Party, they, they, they have different cliques that all want to rise to power. And now we have um, Xi Jinping as the president um, of China and as the uh, party secretary general, um, the secretary general of the Communist Party. And he is very paranoid about anybody threatening his rule. Um, and so if there are people in Hong Kong who simply through their words, simply by publishing books and by, by speaking, um, create a following or um, have the charisma to potentially, potentially lead protests or lead labor movements um, that would threaten the, the party's rule, then that's something that needs to be avoided at all costs. And um, it's, a, it's, it's easy for the party to, yeah, simply throw anybody in jail in China as they see fit already. Um, and they would very much like to do that with um, all the Chinese dissidents, all the people that could threaten the power, no matter where they are in the world. And the fact that there is a little island just outside of their influence area that theoretically is part of, part of their own country um, that does not formally submit to this control um, is, yeah, it's a, it's a big embarrassment. Um, it's something that they probably also don't really, um, they probably consider this a big mistake that they ever agreed to this. Um, and so now they want to um, turn that around and they want to, they don't want anybody to be able to voice opposition to their regime from within China, which means from within Hong Kong. Leo, and, and can you tell us what the current atmosphere in Hong Kong feels like right now? Uh, so over the last week, we had intense protests, um, probably the largest protests since, uh, since the handover on, um, on Sunday. Um, that, so on Sunday... Uh, June 9, we had about 1 million people marching in the street um, and 1 million people out of a population of 7 million um, is a very impressive number. Um, you can imagine how the, um, the, the subway system, the highly efficient subway system, completely collapsed under these numbers. Um, how, um, how 1 million people that try to stretch along a 4, 5, 6 kilometer long road um, simply clogged the entire city uh, for, for all of Sunday. 
Um, and the response of the government to that was, um, uh, we will go ahead. We, heard, we do not hear your voice and we will go ahead with this bill. Uh, so at this point, the, um, yeah, this, this, this hope that people felt being in this large crowd protesting this bill and protesting China um, turned into um, partly resignation, partly frustration, partly um, anger, um, and especially, and so now people start talking about different things. They no longer talk about just marching on the streets, but they, they talk about blocking the government building or they talk about a general strike. So on Wednesday morning, when the bill was supposed to be read in Parliament, um, Parliament still has to approve, even though Parliament is more than 50% pro-government and more than 50% uh, appointed by the uh, appointed by Beijing, there is a yeah 48 or something percent um, opposition um, that is partly democratically elected. Um, that wants that so there is a, there there aren't that many um, um, government uh, parliamentarians that you'd need to convince to not vote for this. Um, so people uh, started surrounding the government um, offices on uh, Wednesday, June 12th. And they did so before morning uh, rush hour um, in a way that caught the police by surprise and in a way that mobilized people at exactly the time when they would have left their home anyway. Um, meaning about 100,000, 150,000 mainly young people um, surrounded the government building in anger and yeah, simply blocked all the entrances. Uh, and this led to the, to the government not being able to open their doors that morning, um, meaning um, the, the parliament could also not open and the bill could not be read. And as the police tried to clear um, the area in the afternoon with um, firing rubber bullets and beanbags and uh, 150 rounds, I believe, of tear gas into the crowd, um, people would simply not leave. Um, and towards the evening, um, as people got off work, um, the crowds got even bigger. And um, yeah, so now slowly you have this, um, this feeling of not necessarily victory, but this feeling of hope again, where people feel like, yes, we can, we can delay this. Um, because at that point, the government not only um, delayed the reading until June 26, um, but kept the government closed for all of Thursday and Friday, um, which, yeah, people consider quite a large victory. Um, so now we have more smaller um, presentation, smaller demonstrations in town, um, mainly by like smaller interest groups. Um, there's going to be another big demonstration on Sunday um, that is again expected to mobilize more the general population rather than just the, the young people, just not just the people willing to stand tear gas, but um, the people who just want to yeah show their show their face um, at the um, at the protests. Um, and then yeah. Um, I have no idea exactly what's going to happen, but there is a chance that um, this, yeah, this, this show of united opposition in Hong Kong um, does convince enough of the either government ministers or, the, or some of the government um, parliamentarians to either withdraw their support for the bill um, or to no longer keep pushing for it. Um, and if the, um, if the bill is delayed until uh, around June 11, then um, Legislative Council will go into recess for the summer, and then the bill is very likely dead.
And so a lot of the voices we heard now from pro-Beijing politicians or um, so-called heavyweights um, or simply the, the, the tycoons have been a little bit confusing. Um, of course, there's lots of rumors. Um, there's always the question of what does China really want with this? Um, and then how much are they willing to push? Um, and uh, yeah, people are currently um, very carefully optimistic um, that this bill could be withdrawn or that they could simply be um, powerful enough to delay the bill until a point where, um, where it no longer, um, yeah, will no longer be pushed. And who are the special interest groups who make up the protests? I, I'd also, and after you tell me that, I'd also like to know about um, just genuinely the, the people who are, who are making up this protest. Yeah, so in, uh, on, on June 9, when you had a million people on the streets, you can really, um, you can really assume that the population is like quite well represented. You have like old people, you have young people, you have uh, business owners, you have lawyers. Um, the um, special interest group, like today is a, is a, is a demonstration of mothers. Um, they, yeah, I mean, you could call them a special interest group. Um, there's been a couple of, of comments by the police um, and a couple of, and especially the chief executive um, who have referenced themselves as like loving mothers who just care for, for, their, for their population. And so now the actual mothers of those protesting are, protesting against police violence tonight. Um, other special interest groups was probably um, like the, the lawyers. Um, the lawyers demonstrated uh, about 10 days ago, I believe. Um, so they held a, a, called a silent march, uh, marching from, the, uh, from Central, where most of these law firms have their offices, to the government um, to petition them to voice their concerns. Um, we could see, yeah, all sorts of, uh, uh, the, the journalists are protesting in their own way. Um, they, for example, showed up at a press conference today wearing, uh, wearing uh, like uh, helmets and wearing reflective uh, vests um, to, yeah, remind, remind, the, remind the people in power that they too were on the streets and that they too were hit by tear gas and rubber bullets. And Leo, where do you find yourself in this conflict? Um, yeah, so the Bitcoin community in Hong Kong, um, I would say, is largely united behind these protests. Um, there are a couple of businesses who have come out in, um, yeah, in quite strong opposition to this law. Um, a few others have simply um, given their employees the choice of whether they want to work um, that day or not, or whether they want to protest. Um, and so for our community, of course, we're very much concerned uh, of this law as well. I'm very much concerned of Hong Kong losing its uh, special status. Um, I think the status quo has served the Bitcoin community incredibly well. Um, and especially the predictability of law is what keeps us here. Um, Hong Kong is quite unique in the world in that it has a very predictable um, and easy to understand approach to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a virtual commodity here. Um, it can be legally traded. It can be legally owned. Um, business can can make use of it in any way they want to see fit um, without having to apply for special licenses or without having to um, yeah to uh, worry about taxation issues too much um, it fits in really relatively well um, there's of course a few barriers in Hong Kong for example banks have more or less collectively refused to deal with Bitcoin businesses um, but there's not really any worry that somebody who uses Bitcoin in Hong Kong um, 
needs to yeah even even worry so much about filing out filling out special forms there's no capital gains tax here we don't have vat um, there are theoretical some theoretically some um kyc and aml requirements for general commodities too um but they are far less strict than that for money and um, yeah, the about 30 or 40 ATMs that exist in the city um, will sell you Bitcoin without, um, yeah, without you having to show your ID, for example. Um, and if now, and if now Chinese law is um, is applied in Hong Kong through the use of such forced uh, extraditions, um, then of course we need to suddenly worry about what the legal situation of Bitcoin is in China. And nobody knows anything about that. Do you see, uh, this might be a stretch, but do you see Bitcoin as a, a method for protest uh, against uh, this issue? Um, no, not so much as a direct um, um, issue of protest. Um, I do think Bitcoin is an important tool for these people as well um, to keep, yeah, to keep uh, accepting donations for their supplies, um, to keep their, um, their savings outside of a banking system that can just yeah easily turn against them. Um, it is yeah it's a it's a very practical tool for people. Um, but what matters for people on the streets is more the ability to quickly communicate with each other, um, the ability to yeah not fall asleep, um, and yeah uh, lucky weather. Um, the money is not so much an, an issue for these protests. What, what I do, do you think there's some, some, so in this case, in this protest, um, I think the banks have been surprisingly um, favorable of the status quo. Not so much that they openly support the protesters, um, but they have not come out in uh, support of this law. And some of the major banks, including HSBC and Standard Chartered, have sort of low-key signaled that they are okay with their, with their um, employees going to protest. But of course, the, um, the, the Chinese uh, government is very much propped up by its banking sector. And I have seen reports of people withdrawing cash in large numbers from mainland Chinese banks. So people who had bank accounts with, uh, with mainland Chinese banks would um, close them or would withdraw their cash. Um, so that's something where, where Bitcoin can be an interesting alternative for those um, or simply where um, yeah, well, we're just reminded of the um, of the fragility of, of any kind of banking system um, that can easily be brought down by a bank run. Um, we've also seen people um, queue up at um, subway ticket stations, subway ticket machines, um, because they didn't want to use electronic payments to purchase their tickets, and um, because this purchasing history um, could later be used against them to prove that they took part in a, some kind of illegal protest. Um, and so we're very much, um, yeah, we're very much aware of, of um, the fragility of the banking system and Bitcoin as an alternative to storing your wealth, um, as well as Bitcoin as an alternative to making anonymous transfers. Um, but I don't think it's being used on a large scale by these protesters, and it's not something they're currently worrying about. They're worrying about how to build barricades and how to resist tear gas. And I understand the app Telegram has been used a lot as a method for communication and organization for these protests over the last week. Could, could you talk about that? Um, Telegram has proven to be a very efficient tool of um, communication. Um, 
similarly efficient as uh, Twitter, but not as open, not as much in the public. Um, Telegram um, has been proven to still work, even when the internet is very slow. Um, you can imagine when 150,000 people surround, um, surround a government building, that the cell phone masks in the area are quite overwhelmed. And Telegram is often one of the last apps that's still working. Um, so even if you just have 2G internet, you can still catch up with your Telegram chats and you no longer can catch up with Signal and you can no longer catch up with, with WhatsApp, for example. Um, WhatsApp um, also has like a limitation on, on group size. Um, and I think the, the fact that these groups are in, the, uh, encrypted in WhatsApp matters very little to these people. Um, because in a group of 250 people, or when you're looking at Signal, you have groups with 1,000 people, 10,000 people. Um, encryption doesn't really matter. Um, you have 10,000 people in a group, somebody is going to be a mole. And there's, there's too much of a risk that if one of 10,000 people is going to be arrested or lose their phone on the street, and suddenly a police officer gets to see the chat. Uh, and what matters here is that the police should not be able to see who is in the chat. Um, and in WhatsApp, it's very easy for police to see that because everybody's just listed with their phone numbers um, and same in, in, in Signal. Um, but in, in Telegram, that's not the case. Uh, in Telegram, you can hide your phone number from even your contacts and you can uh, refuse to sync your, your contacts with the cloud, which you also cannot do in WhatsApp. Um, and then um, you can just give somebody, even somebody you've, uh, you've never met, um, simply your Telegram username they can add you to a group, and you're now part of a, of a communication network um, without being at risk of the admin or any other member ratting you out to the police. Yeah, and, and from what I understand also, um, Telegram experienced a DDoS attack in the, in the Hong Kong area this week too. Yeah, yeah, so that did impair service a bit more than like the cell phone service. But if, for example, for me, it's a... Uh, it worked relatively well. I, I do think Telegram responded to that quite well. Um, I did hear complaints that people can't open it, but on a large scale, I would argue that the DDoS attack failed. And, and I read that, that one of the group organizers for a, I believe it was a Telegram group, um, was, was uh, tracked down by the police, and he was not even yeah. taking, taking part in the protests. But uh, he, the police entered his... Uh, his house and yeah and I'm, I'm not 100% confident that I know how this person got caught um, but I do assume it was through the phone number um, so somebody um, would yeah somebody would uh, would have their phone number in their address book or their phone number was visible to everybody um, and now the police um, arrested them um, and so the police did also now uh, forced them to hand over the phone numbers of, um, of other people in the group. Um, and I think it's quite important that this admin is not able to do that. Like for an efficient messaging system that can be used in such mass protests, the users also have to be sort of protected from the admin. Um, and yeah, it's probably, it's probably uh, good news that the police isn't able to figure this out themselves who is in the group. And I very much hope that the admin wasn't able to like turn over uh, a large a number of, uh, of um, a large number of the members because as we've seen in in the past, these trials are not necessarily fair. Um, they are yeah um, 
they're quite problematic to the point that two people charged with rioting in 2016 have been granted asylum in Germany um, this year or last year. Um, meaning, yeah, somebody in, in, the German, uh, in the German ministries that um, decide on these asylum cases was convinced that these activists would not receive a fair trial in Hong Kong. Wow. Um, on your Twitter, you've been giving advice to people similar to what you're talking about now about, about what people can do um, if they're organizing to uh, keep their communication private. Yeah, absolutely. I believe uh, privacy is a very basic human right. Um, the freedom of speech and the, the ability to communicate is uh, vital for the functioning of any open society. Uh, and so spreading the knowledge on how to protect yourself online um, is something that I'm, that I'm quite passionate about. And these are different topics and different scale protests, uh, certainly. But I, I was thinking when I was reading about this this morning, I was thinking about the Arab Spring and how important mm -hmm. social me media was in that. And I don't know if you, you have made that comparison or if you could sort of maybe contrast that. Yeah, I sadly, I'm not an expert in what happened in, in Syria or Egypt or Tunisia at that time. Um, there are probably a lot of parallels. I think the biggest difference is that these people were yearning for freedom. These people were inside of repressive regimes um, and they were demanding rights. And Hong Kongers are inside of a, of a relatively open and liberal um, regime. They're um, in some of the freest economies in the world. And I do think uh, in general, they enjoy a very high degree of, uh, of, of personal liberty. Um, and what they demand is to keep those liberties. Um, so it's going to be much more difficult to convince them to give those up. Um, but they also have, of course, a lot more, a lot more knowledge and a lot more um, overseas support um, because they, yeah, they, that's where their personal networks are. Um, and Hong Kong does not have sensitive internet. These people do not need to first figure out how to like jump the Great Firewall. Um, they do not. There is no ability for the Hong Kong government at this point to censor uh, Twitter or to uh, or to shut down Telegram, um, and that changes the game quite a lot. That makes things very different to um, Egypt or Syria or uh, Tunisia. And just to take a step back, uh, how, what brought you to Hong Kong? I came here to study. I did my master's here in statistics um, in 2011. And uh, shortly after, I um, started organizing the Bitcoin meetups here in Hong Kong, um, which have now turned to the Bitcoin Association. Um, so, yeah, um, it's been eight years for me in Hong Kong. Um, quite eight quite exciting years. Um, Seen a lot of, um, yeah, seen, seen Bitcoin change throughout the years and the community grow. Um, but Hong Kong, luckily, did not change much. I think Hong Kong's, um, one of Hong Kong's biggest strengths, but also weaknesses, is uh, its, its ability to resist change, right? The entire, the entire constitution and the entire political system was set up to resist any kind of change. Um, this uh, could be in good, right? Um, because we, uh, we are, yeah, facing a, a very powerful organization to the north that would very much love to change Hong Kong. And the fact that they haven't been able to do so is probably incredibly frustrating for them. Um, and uh, yeah, a, a big illustration for how important um, these independent institutions are and how important civil society is. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of things where we think Hong Kong should, should probably change. 
Uh, there's a lot of ways that, in a lot of ways, Hong Kong is not always a very livable city, uh, and Hong Kong is not always um, really going with the times. Um, it's not a very technologically advanced place. It's not a very um, LGBT-friendly place. It's not a very. Um, it hasn't done a lot to um, reduce uh, car ownership or to increase uh, like green spaces in the city, as for example, um, the cities in the United States and Europe would have done it. Um, but yeah, the fact that Hong Kong does so much err on the side of the status quo probably does leave, uh, lead us to be a bit hopeful that as Hong Kong unites behind the status quo in this case of saying no to a new extradition bill, um, that they will succeed. It sounds like you love Hong Kong. And, and in your Twitter uh, bio, you, you call it the everlasting thriller. So yeah. do you yeah, think you would fan. ever leave Hong Kong if you I'm had a big to? Fan. Um, at some point, uh, of course, I, I, I will leave. Um, it's not that, I'm, that I want to be trapped here or it's not that I want to see the city um, uh, die or... So I don't want to be the last one to turn the lights off. Um, but I am still hopeful for Hong Kong. And I don't think that Hong Kong is dying just yet. Um, the, it's facing probably its biggest threat ever. Um, but in a way, I'm, I'm much more confident of what Hong Kong will look like in 30 years than what China will look like in 30 years. And can you talk about the Hong Kong Bitcoin Association? I, I think that that is your current current job right now, right? Yes, um, it's not exactly a job. It's a it's a role. Um, uh-huh. I do, I do have I do have other um, smaller jobs um, that I do to like, cover my living expenses. And the Bitcoin Association is uh, something like a hobby, something like a role, uh, something like a passion. Um, we are a community of enthusiasts and entrepreneurs and developers um, who are excited about Bitcoin. Some of us are excited more about Bitcoin in specifics, other more about things like Lightning or even um, altcoins or general blockchain. Um, it's a relatively, uh, relatively broad and, and colorful community. Um, we would host, of course, the, the meetups. This is the, um, probably the most long-standing event that we've hosted. Um, they look very similar to most meetups in the world. Uh, please say hi when you're here, uh, Bitcoin HK on, on meetup.com. Um, we would also host talks, uh, panel discussions. Um, we would host a, um, a job fair um, happening tomorrow, June 15. Um, we are hosting a conference for cryptocurrency exchanges, uh, July 29. We hosted the Lightning Hack Day in March 30. Uh, so those are sort of the, the type of events that we, that we do. Um, on top of that, of course, we would help out anybody who... Um, who is hosting events here or is coming through. Um, very, uh, yeah, very excited about like connecting the Hong Kong community to the world and, uh, and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, and, and what's your background? Are, um, where are you from? I was born in Italy. Okay. Um, grew up mainly in Germany, um, Austria. Um, I studied economics in Vienna, um, moved to Hong Kong, studied statistics, um, worked for a, a data analytics firm and later for a logistics consultancy. Um, that was around the time when, when I got big into Bitcoin. Um, and yeah, over the last years, um, been writing about information security and online privacy topics. Um, yeah, as well as um, 
teaching about Bitcoin and uh, lecturing on on uh, yeah on, on this whole range of, of subjects. That's awesome. Um, is there anything else uh, you wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on? Um, not that I can think of anything now. Um, great questions. Uh, lots of fun topics. Uh, Leo, are you are you planning on going to the protest today? Um, I believe there will not be too much happening uh, this Saturday. Um, I will go on Sunday for sure. Um, I will I will definitely at least drop by, um, and then we'll see what what the next week brings. Uh, I had one last question. I just kind of wanted to ask you when you're in that large crowd and and you're you know standing there and facing off against police can you just sort of describe like what the police are doing and, and what the feeling is like um most of the times in the protests um there wouldn't be much police visible most of the time people are marching peacefully or they're sitting on the streets and people are incredibly peaceful there's absolutely no violence there's not even like not even theft there's not even people being rude to each other people separate the trash um they will they will make sure they clean up after themselves. Um, there are these instances when uh, police build up barriers. Um, they would yeah, position themselves with, with shields. Um, and on Wednesday, we, for the first time, time saw people um, yeah, shooting rubber bullets into the crowd to get people to flee, um, to re repeatedly um, yeah, cover the area in tear gas to get people to run away. Um, and so you don't have um, you don't have this um, type of protests that you would have in Europe or at let's say at, at G8 or, or WTO protests in, the, in North America, where people come pre well prepared for a riot and then face off um, face off police with by throwing stones. You have you have these standoffs. Um, you have the police throwing tear gas, everybody running away, assembling at the next corner. Um, police, of course, has, have to um, assemble, reassemble as well, and then protesters come back. And the main goal is to keep the government buildings uh, locked down. The main goal is to keep people from, um, yeah, from being able to um, host their, hold their meetings and from being able to um, conduct their, um, their bill readings. And uh, it doesn't really matter whether then people face off the police directly outside of the government entrance or whether that there's a perimeter a few hundred meters away. Uh, what matters is that wherever government employees are, um, are dedicated to enter the area that this entrance is blocked. And, and during these protests, uh, when people are out and they're standing together, I imagine they're, 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 people are, are chanting or there's, there's, yeah. you know, there are pickets. Um, what are people saying? Uh, I think the, if I pronounce it right, the protest slogan for Wednesday has mostly been "Sick Moy," and sort of repeal the bill. "Sick Moy," I think "Sick Moy," uh, repeal the bill. Um, so they would, yeah, they would scream, "Repeal the bill! Repeal the bill!" Um, the to, yeah, not bring the bill forward. Um, the, the protest slogan, the dominant one for 2014, would have been "I want universal suffrage." Much less catchy, um, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, then there are a couple of others. People, of course, call the police names. Um, they would um, accuse the police of being triads, or they would ask for the chief executive to step down. Um, 
those are sort of the, the things that I pick up. Okay, cool. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate you talking to us. I know it's late over there. Yeah, yeah very happy to talk about this. Um, thank you for helping spread the word about Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, in addition to, about, uh, to Bitcoin. Well, well, you're, I mean, just your willingness to talk to us is uh, very heroic. So we really appreciate that. Um, yeah, we look forward to seeing you at uh, Bitcoin 20. Yeah, looking forward to seeing you in San Francisco. What, nine days, eight days? And we will definitely <laughs> buy you a beer. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Can't wait. All right. Take care, man. See you there. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. Today's episode was produced and edited by myself and Dave. Theme music provided by Billy Sly from the Crypto Cantina. And a very special thanks to our guest, Leo Weiss. Be careful over there in Hong Kong in the protest and travel safely to Bitcoin 2019. We'll see you soon, buddy. Visit BitcoinMagazine.com for more in-depth news, analysis, and resources about the most successful peer-to-peer currency. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Bitcoin Magazine. You can find more engaging crypto podcasts over at Let'sTalkBitcoin.com. You can follow them on Twitter, at the LTB Network, for all the latest episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the show on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to your podcast. And you can even find us on YouTube, so make sure to subscribe to us there. If you've got the time, please leave us a review. It really, really helps the show, and you already know that. Again, guys, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. 